morning we're going to be in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel. Let me invite you to go ahead and, and pull out your Bibles and be ready to follow through uh, part of that chapter with us together today. Again, a reminder that we are endeavoring to walk closely with Jesus in this Lenten season. We want to identify with him. We've been thinking a lot about our identity, and, and it's our conviction that we know most deeply who we are when we know deeply who the person of Jesus is. And John's gospel has this powerful way of inviting us to identify with Jesus through a series of proclamations where Jesus says, I am. We've heard him proclaim to us that he is the bread of life to feed us. He's the light of life, the light of the world to illuminate and cause us to see. That he is the, the gate to the sheepfold. He's the good shepherd to guide us and lead us into life. This morning we are going to consider what it means to identify with Jesus as the resurrection and the life itself. Our world at the, the start of Lent last year, a full year ago, just as Lent was beginning, our world was entering into a season of what turned out to be lockdowns and isolation and upheaval. And even though we, we did make our way through Easter last year, in some ways it's felt like we've been in a Lenten season ever, ever since, ever since last March. I was listening to a, a podcast earlier this week, and it, it, they, they said it feels like we've never stopped lenting, right? We've been in not 40 days of testing and waiting and being asked to fast from things we deeply love, but we've been in 12 months of, of that preparing work. I think all of us would acknowledge that that's been a long stretch. It's been challenging. It's it's been wearying at times, um, and we're eager, I think, today for, for spring to break. We're eager for Easter to arrive. We're, we're eager for, for Lent to give way to life and resurrection. We want to be released from our living rooms. We want to be released from uh, the, the, the bondage of, of having things that we love taken from us, people we love taken from us, and, and the inability to be with them. But I think that as we've gone through this prolonged kind of desert season, this prolonged Lent, at the very least it's provided for us a, a chance to, to become aware of something we're pretty good at ignoring otherwise. And that is our limitation, that is our grief, even the things we've lost. This marathon Lenten year has kind of felt like a forced fast. And it's been a fast from the illusion that we are in control of things. I think we've, we've commented, all of us, uh, throughout this past year, of, of things that, that have given way and, and we don't get to dictate how we live or the choices we make. We're confronted with limitation and with loss and even with our mortality. And so I'd, I'd ask you to think, what have you lost this year? What have you grieved in the past 12 months? Where have you come up against 
those limitations. I want us to think about that. I know there's, there's part of me that just wants to get to Easter today, but we're, we're still two weeks out. We've still got two weeks of Lent to go. I think the Gospel of John wants us to remember that, that grief and, and this reality of our limitation, of our mortality, confronts each and every one of us. And it confronts Jesus here in John 11. Is there a way that we are invited to meet Jesus, to identify with Jesus in a season of difficulty, a season of grief, a season of loss? And if so, what would that identification look like? Well, as we, again, come just two weeks from Easter today, right, we're, we're nearing the end of this long Lenten hike. Jerusalem is, is just on the horizon. But Jesus has a tendency to lead us as his disciples to places we might otherwise avoid, places we wouldn't willingly go on our own. Jerusalem was one of those places for Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus is willing to walk with us toward difficulty, toward grief, toward mortality. Jesus is even willing to help us surface our fears think so that he can show to us that even as we walk into death itself, we can know his presence there. And we can begin to enter into the power of his resurrection in that way. The God who goes into death with us is also the God who is able to bring us into new life. So let me pray for us as we walk with Jesus that road this morning, John 11. Lord Jesus, pray that you would give us a spirit that we're willing to walk with you where you're walking this morning. This road to the cross, Lord, is one that you know brings new life. You invite us to be your companions to learn from you the way you bring life. Lord, we acknowledge to you our limitations. We acknowledge to you our losses this morning, the places that we are weary, people that we have missed. Lord, we invite you to, to meet us with the power of your word and the power of your living Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that as I preach, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of your people be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is John 11, start with verses 1 through 6. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. 
When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. First six verses in chapter 11 deal with the delivery of bad news. How do you and I react to receiving bad news? How do we respond as human beings? In the past year, a new word entered the sort of mainstream English vernacular. Maybe you've come across this this year. It's called doom scrolling. Doom scrolling, as uh, one, one uh, newspaper columnist referred to it, is the habit of spending inordinate amounts of time on devices poring over grim news. Right? You scroll from one doom to the next. And if you've been sucked into doom scrolling in this past year, whether it's on your phone or your computer or a television screen, you've also probably experience what comes after doom scrolling. And that's typically this kind of palpable sense of anxiety. Right? An inability to know what to do with all that news. What to do with all that grief. Right? How do you process all that? How do you respond to it? And at the start of John 11 here, we have the disciples in Jesus... They've gone across the Jordan. They're they're happily engaging with new disciples. They're baptizing new followers when suddenly bad news arrives from back in Judea. Jesus gets a message that's not not even ten words in length. We don't know how it came to him. through, Through some messenger it was sent and it arrives. And the message is simply, Lord, the one that you love is sick. The one you love is not even named. Apparently it was, it was apparent to Jesus. This is someone close to him. The one you love is sick. And of course the Lord knows it's Lazarus. Many of us have also received that kind of message unexpectedly. The one you love, right? A spouse or a child or a parent sick, is not well, right? Some disease, some crisis has interrupted ordinary, everyday life. And none of us knows what to do with news like that. None of us knows what to do with bad news except typically to be unsettled, to be anxious, And typically then we begin to cycle through whatever kind of defense mechanisms we have to fend off the waves of fear that come next. I think there's a a very real sense in which human beings just don't seem to be wired to know how to respond to bad news. We don't know what to do with it. And so I think it's because of that reality that it's especially confusing to us to see how Jesus responds here in verse 4. 
Jesus gets this bad news from Judea, from Bethany. And upon hearing that the one he loves, right, not just anybody, not just some distant friend, but someone he cares deeply for has fallen sick, Jesus sends back his own message. He says, this sickness will not end in death, but will bring about God's glory. What do you do with that message of Jesus's? And imagine being Mary and Martha. Imagine being on the receiving end of that message coming back. What's Jesus trying to communicate? How do we relate to Jesus here? And I have to, I have to confess, I think it's hard for me on the surface of things to, to be able to relate to how Jesus responds. Because on the one hand, we maybe hear in Jesus' words a kind of tone deafness to the gravity, the urgency of this situation. That's problematic, though, for us because we know Jesus to be the Son of God. We believe that he understands the gravity of the situation. Maybe what Jesus is saying is that his miracle-working powers have it covered. Don't worry. Right? If you're friends with me, you don't have to worry about your sickness leading to death. And I guess that would be a reassuring message to receive in some ways. But we know from the text as we read further that likely by the time this message lands back in Bethany, Mary and Martha are laying the body of their brother in his tomb. Right? Jesus didn't take the death out of Lazarus' sickness. The one Jesus loves here has died. So what gives, right? How, how are we meant to identify with the words and with the response of Jesus in verse 4? I think to do that, what I, what I hope to do is to sort of exegete Jesus' response to grief in what happens next, what happens after the messenger departs. I want to identify with Jesus in that way. The first thing I think we, we see, the first thing I'm struck by, is how Jesus doesn't immediately kind of get pulled into the anxiety of this bad news. Somehow he, he recognizes that he's a few days' journey from Bethany. He decides to attend to what's in front of him, what's, what's most uh, immediate. He attends to the disciples who have come across the Jordan to be with him. And he completes... This, this time, this season of baptizing. He addresses the immediate needs of that moment. That's a difficult thing to do when we get bad news, when we're confronted with grief, just to, to sort of countenance that there are real needs, real things, not, not to allow grief to overwhelm each and every response we have in life. But as Jesus sort of appropriately responds to the immediate, he also doesn't push aside, he doesn't ignore the urgency and the reality of grief either. 
And in verse 7, we're told that two days later, Jesus makes a very deliberate effort to move toward it. Look with me at verses 7 through 16. It says, after, after two days passed from receiving this news, he said to the disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Notice they say you and not we. <laughs> Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Look at this, they're, they're avoiding at every turn, right? Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. We don't need to go. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Finally, let us go also, that we may die with him. The decision that that's the disciples are wrestling with here is to go or not to go with Jesus. Do we really want to follow Jesus back to Judea? And it seems like they lay out every reason not to, not to go with him. Verse 8, they, they bring up to Jesus, Jesus, are you sure you really want to go back to Mary and Martha's house? Don't you remember that the last time you were in Judea, you almost got us killed? Jesus, if he's just sleeping, if he's just sick, why, why go there? Why walk into that situation if you don't have to? As the disciples sort of make their own calculations, this is not a journey that seems worth the making for them. And as Thomas estimates what it will cost, right, he says it, it feels like if they choose to follow Jesus, they'll be walking toward death. Which is actually a rather remarkable intuition on Thomas's part, as we see the rest of the gospel play out. But as I, as I read this section, I find myself identifying with the disciples more than Jesus here. Right? When, when grief is what, or conflict, or, or difficulty is what lies on the horizon, I also get kind of heavy feet like the disciples. And who wants to willingly walk into suffering? Who wants to make a trip toward sickness? And who wants to get close to grief? What if, what if the bad news waiting there is, is contagious in some way? What if grief 
sucks us in, pulls us into its heaviness. Why not leave those suffering well enough alone? Right? Grief almost never, in my experience, feels comfortable traversing. Even if it's getting near to the grief of someone else, those we care for. Never feels safe or predictable. Almost always to get near to grief requires a conscious choice. Right? It's, an, it's an act of obedience. It's an act of the will. It's an act of compassion. And I wonder if there's a way that Jesus would be inviting us to follow him like he's inviting the disciples here. To get closer toward one another in this season. We've been split apart for the better part of the last year. We've been more isolated than not. And for many of you, you have suffered various kinds of grief and loss. Some of those, those sufferings and losses we are not even aware of. Or maybe only dimly aware of because of that isolation and separation. Difficult enough to, to go through grief, but it's even more painful when we go through it alone. And so I wonder if, if Jesus might be pulling us, as he pulls us back together into worship, into fellowship with one another, pulling us back together to, to share these difficult things, the losses that we've experienced, the hard things that have happened. Whether that's in, in our health, in our relationships, in our life circumstances... Jesus would be pulling us together toward the house of Lazarus. And notice in this passage, twice Jesus has to insist on making that journey with his disciples. Jesus' expectation is that if we count ourselves as, as those belonging to him, then we'll keep company with him even on the road to Bethany and on to Jerusalem and on into conflict, and on into suffering, and on into grief. Jesus says it's part of our discipleship. It's part of our identity. Jesus isn't naive here. Jesus knows what is waiting for him in Bethany. Right? As they leave uh, the, the Transjordan region, as they begin walking the road, Jesus levels with the disciples in verse 14. He says, Lazarus is dead. But Jesus says, let us go to him anyway. Jesus knows when he gets to Bethany, what waits for him are the wailing of mourners and the look of loss in his friends' faces. Jesus knows that even the stench of death itself waits to confront him in Bethany. But Jesus still goes there, chooses it. And finally, Thomas becomes the first disciple to, to yield to the will of his rabbi. Thomas says, okay, Lord, let us go that we might die with you. Are we willing 
follow Jesus into these difficult places of loss. Look at verses 17 through 27. What happens when Jesus gets there? On his arrival in Bethany, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. As Jesus comes to Bethany, I think the, the question I ask is, is how do we reconcile the reality of resurrection with the experience of our grief? Is there a way that those two things coexist for us? The reality of resurrection with the presence of our own grief. Most of the time when you hear John 11 preach, the, the preacher will get you to the end of the chapter. <laughs> He'll get you to the part where Lazarus is sprung from his tomb. Maybe the preacher even gets you to the part where a couple weeks later, a resuscitated, a resurrected Lazarus sits down for a banquet with Jesus in his own home. Right? We, we know and we long for the, the reality of, of the resurrection that Jesus does bring in this chapter. A full resurrection. The one that's yet to come. But today, I, I want to stop here with Martha. We're not going to get all the way to the end of chapter 11 today. I want to stop with Martha, who in her grief and in her confusion and in her disappointment, right, a Martha who has laid her brother in the grave four days before this, we're told goes out looking for Jesus when, when she hears he's nearby. She goes out and she finds Jesus, and I imagine that the first thing that greets Jesus is not a hug. It's not a smile. Jesus is greeted in this way. If you had been here, my brother would not have died.
What do you imagine registers in Martha's voice there? How do you hear those words? Is there anger in her words? Is there disappointment in her words? Is there blame in her words for Jesus? Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. What I hear is Martha asking for a different way. A different way to do grief. A different way around grief. A different way through grief. If you had been here, Jesus, things would be different. But even now, Jesus, I know God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus, make death different. Before we get to the glory that comes at the end of this chapter, before we get to the glory that comes in two weeks when Jesus breaks forth from his tomb in resurrection glory, maybe we also need permission to acknowledge these moments too. Right? That there are parts and times and seasons in our life where death still hovers close by. There are times where, where our Lenten journey seems like it's never going to end. It's just difficulty and trial and sickness in body or spirit or soul or death. And we feel stuck. And we come out looking for Jesus and we say, this doesn't feel okay. Jesus, can you make this different? Look how Jesus receives Martha's lament. First he says to her, he reminds her of a promise. He says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And he, he will be raised to new life. And Martha assents to that. She says... Jesus, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. But it doesn't seem like Martha is, is fully satisfied with that response. As Leslie Newbegin says in his study of John's gospel, he says a, a, mere, a, a mere theology of resurrection can be cold comfort next to the intensity of our grief. Instead, we need something to stand with us, to be beside us in that moment. Right? We need a resurrection that's more present than future in those moments. Leslie Newbegin says, we need to know that resurrection is no mere doctrine, but resurrection has a living face and a name. So it's from a living, from a grieving, from a suffering human being that Jesus offers his words. He offers to Martha not a mere theology of resurrection. He offers to her the incarnation of that doctrine. And he 
says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, the one who believes in me, Martha, will live even though they die. By believing in me, right, will overcome death. In this way, even our deepest sickness, even the, the darkest grief does not end, does not terminate, does not lead to death. Those things lead us toward the Son of God, Jesus says. The Son of God who goes into death so that he can meet us in death and bring us forth into his life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. And then notice the question he puts to her. He says, do you believe this? Notice he doesn't ask Martha, do you know this? Do you know about this? He says, Martha, do you believe this? Do you have a a trusting? Do you have an existential? Do you have an interpersonal connection to the resurrection life of God in me? And I think we can be encouraged by her response in verse 27. Look at how she responds to Jesus. She says, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are Messiah. Jesus, I identify with you that you are the presence and the life of God come into our world. Even in all its death and darkness, resurrection is present to Martha. That day, even as her brother still lays in the tomb. We are invited to know, to identify with the presence in the life of God, even as we grieve, even as we wait, even as we're cocooned and and wishing and waiting for things to be different. Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life for us in this present moment. He is the resurrection and the life today, just as he will be on that last day when we are raised into his glorious fullness. May we go out to meet Jesus on the road he has asked us to walk with him. And may he lead us together into life itself. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that you would guide our hearts. I pray that you would guide us toward the places of our own loss, that you might meet us there. And that you would also guide us to those you want us to be present to to be alongside, to be a living witness to the resurrection and the life you are in us to them. I want to just give you the next few minutes to pray in those ways. To pray that God would would allow you to bring any loss you've experienced this past year to him.
to know the invitation of his resurrection life there. But also to pray where he might be leading you to go. Whose home, whose presence he might be inviting you to sit with in order to, to minister the, the presence of Jesus to today. Lord, we praise you that you are the presence of God's life to us. You minister healing and resurrection power. Lord, we present the, the needs of this body to you. Or we pray for those who have experienced losses that we don't even know of yet. Or we pray for the presence of your spirit in those places. We pray for the presence of your people in those places to begin to, to minister your care. Or we praise you for the places we have seen you work and meet us in our need. Or we praise you uh, that the bowling family was able to, to come home from the hospital this weekend. We thank you for Hannah. Lord, we continue to pray for her. We pray for her health and life. I pray for Jamie and Katie and bless them as they care for her, minister to her. Lord, we pray for Carol Hassler. We pray for her continued recovery. We pray for Andrea. We pray, Lord, that you would go before us, and prepare us in these next weeks for the celebration we want to enter into on Easter morning, the fullness of the gift of resurrection life. Guide our hearts in worship now as we pray. Amen.